The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture, and find food truth. And today I'm honored to welcome my guest, Ms. Ensedu Witherspoon. She is the Executive Director for the Children's Environmental Health Network, based in Washington, D.C. And for the past 18 years, she has served as a key spokesperson for children's vulnerabilities and the need for their protection, conducting presentations and lectures internationally. She is a leader in the field of children's environmental health, which is a topic near and dear to my heart. She has served as a member on the National Institutes of Health Council of Councils, the Science Advisory Board for the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the External Science Board for the Environmental Influences on Child Health Outcomes. She is a co-leader for advancing the science and health initiative of the National Collaborative on a Cancer-Free Economy. Ms. Witherspoon is also a board member for the Pesticide Action Network of North America, the Environmental Integrity Project, and she serves on the Maryland Children's Environmental Health Advisory Council. She has a long list of activities, but she does hold a BS in biology pre-med from Siena College and a master's in public health and maternal and child health from the George Washington University School of Public Health and Health Services. She is also a mom of four children. Welcome. Thank you. It's always such a pleasure. Thank you so much, Melinda. Well, I wanted our listeners to know about your organization, the Children's Environmental Health Network, and all of the incredible work that you are doing. And I had the privilege of attending one of your excellent conferences several years ago, where I took a deep dive into some of the environmental hazards to children, and especially underprivileged children. And I thought we could talk about some of those things today. That sounds wonderful. Tell me first, how did you get involved or interested in children's health? Yeah, so this is a good question. I'm sure my dad, <laughs> when he's listening, will smile at this one. I was going to be a pediatrician for a very long time, middle school through probably junior year of college. And so that connection to health, well-being, helping the vulnerable has always been an interest, and, and in particularly our youngest vulnerable, our children. Right around junior year of college, I started having this eureka moment or, or concern, is this the only way to do this? so love and appreciate our clinicians out there and our nurses and our practitioners and our MDs, but no one at my college not that long ago was even speaking about public health, sadly. I believe that's changed a lot. This is like in the late 90s, and I kind of stumbled into public health, recognizing that I still was very connected and was passionate about the health and well-being of people, their behaviors the behavior change of an individual within a family as well as in a larger community and what an impact that can have in a very positive, I mean, we see the negative impacts of that, but there's such a positive cyclical connection. And once I uh, started my training in maternal and child health, public health, it's, it's kind of like history, as they say, <laughs> because I had really found that true connection that I had always been searching for. And literally the first job out of grad school was with the children's Environmental Health Network, to my appreciation, I was doing communication outreach at first, and then 
I became the deputy director, and then for the longest, I'll be 20 years in July. It's insane. It's been quite a ride. <laughs> wow. I share your concerns, and I recognize, too, that children are so vulnerable. In fact, I love the way the Native American communities speak about a woman's uterus as being the first environment. But I should ask you to explain, what is it that makes children so much more vulnerable than, say, an adult? Sure. And thank you for that. And by the way, we're always looking for feedback from the general public on our resources because none of us just want to be doing this just for the sake of doing it. The whole point of our work is to mobilize individuals, communities into action, actions to protect themselves. So um, I just want to throw that out there. The whole reason that we're around, and I always say I I wish we, we didn't have to be around. We will be almost 30 years in existence very soon. And I know I'm the third director in line. There's no way the founding director would have even anticipated there would still be a need for a national nonprofit that would have to remind constantly in our policymaking process and our decision-making and our standard-setting that, oh, by the way, how will that impact vulnerable populations like children? That's still very much our role. But when you think about the biology of a child, when you think about their behaviors, children are on the ground, they're crawling as they should be, they're little scientists, I call them, they're exploring as they should be, but those behaviors put them in harm's way, because usually they're then putting their hands in their mouths, and anything that they have crawled on or anything that has been on the floor, they're picking up. Also, they actually drink more fluids than adults pound for pound, and actually eat more fruits and vegetables, sadly, but it is true. And so again, those, especially when we talk about our water exposures and what's on our fruits and vegetables in particular, those are other routes of harm for children. And then their bodies, so these chemicals, we all know, unfortunately, if we all do some biosampling, we all have many different types of chemicals in our bodies. That's unfortunately our reality. We are able to sustain them for the most part. All of our systems have already matured and developed. A young brain is still developing well past toddler years, sometimes three-ish, four years of age. So those are very critical windows, especially prenatal. So a lot of our work is explicitly looking at women of childbearing age and even earlier, and dads, by the way, because the science is showing us what dad is also exposed to early in life can actually have an implication in his children later in life. It's really an interesting phenomenon. The respiratory system, our musculoskeletal systems, of course the neurological systems are just to name a few. Any of those that can be very negatively impacted when come into contact with chemicals that were never meant to be in the human body. And that's why children, among many reasons, are much more of concern when we're talking about these exposures. Right. Well, you've got a wealth of resources at your website. And again, that's the Children's Environmental Health Network. And the one that I think that I'll start with, and I'll just let our listeners know, it's www.cehn.org. And I'll provide a link to that. But so many working parents, of course, bring their children into a daycare setting. And you've got this fabulous eco-healthy child care guide for improving the environment, not only in a childcare setting, but whatever we're doing right in a childcare setting that we want to be on the lookout for, we can apply those to our own home. So you've got a whole list of issues that we should not only be aware of, but you also give us action steps for 
ways to reduce risk? Like who would think, for example, for air quality, not using something like a scented candle or an air freshener because of those compounds that are released by those scents that get into the atmosphere? You talk about household chemicals as well as lead and pesticides. I want to give you an opportunity to talk about the Eco-Healthy Child Care Program and your checklist that you created from that. Thank you so much. We're extremely proud of this program. About, oh my goodness, well over 12 years ago, we started recognizing that there seemed to be a lot of attention on homes, thankfully, even K-12 through schools, wonderful, even though we still have a lot of work to do in them. Again, per my earlier comments, who was really looking at where children spend a majority of their time when they're not at home and they're not yet in the K-12 environment, i.e. childcare or early learning centers, as we call them, We did a a whole analysis in the country. We talked to about half of the states, talked to their licensing child care folks, talked to their Head Start officials and some others, and pretty much asked them the same question. Are you concerned about environmental health? Are you getting any formal training? And by the way, if you did get some, would it be beneficial to your practice? Everyone said yes, and that was really the start of this program, which works to train and educate child care professionals and owners and facility managers low to no cost steps that they can take within their facility, around their facility, on their grounds, to promote health and well-being. So that benefits. This is a field that's predominantly taken care of by women. Women are usually most of our child care providers in this country, and in many cases, women of childbearing age. So that's critical to them. Also, of course, the services of the children that they're serving, that's critical. And they become an amazing champion to the parents and the families that they are serving because they are so respected and any changes that they're making, they're able to then share in a tertiary way with their family. So it's a win-win for us. So there's the training side. There's also an online training on the website that's mentioned. We have a whole section of our website just devoted to this program. And you can now, no matter where you are actually in the world, go online and actually take portions according to the time available. I think within a two-week window, it has to be completed the actual modules that focus on 16 different environmental health exposures and specific things one can do to reduce and or eliminate, in some case, the exposure. The other side of the program is the checklist. This is well peer-reviewed and all of this. We have science advisors to this program that keep us up to date. It's 30 questions. Any child care professional can go ahead and download it or ask us to mail it to them. And if you fulfill at least 24 of the 30 questions in a positive, affirmative way, and it asks about practices and procedures in your facility, you will then get our two-year endorsement. Again, child care is a small business and actually can be a big business. So we have small home child care facilities in our program, all the way up to Bright Horizons that maybe have a few hundred children in their facility and all in between. But it's a great marketing tool in addition to the public health benefits to being part of our program We give them all kinds of posters and engagement materials, and they are very proud to display these and talk about them as they have families interviewing for possible positions. And then along the way, they're getting technical assistance from us. They can come to us anytime and ask questions. We might do pop-up visits when we're in the area. They know that to see how they're doing and make sure that they are actually exemplifying what they've said that they were doing. And I should mention, these checklists have to be third-party approved by a person that's not a staff member. So it's our version of a checks and balance because we have yet to really find people that are going to go out of their way to scam this system, but they tend to have parents, you know, because the parents obviously want these facilities to be as healthy and 
and beneficial to everyone as possible, so there's no motivation for them to lie. We've been thrilled. Our aim is to get into all of the, for sure, the licensed childcare in the country, but even the unlicensed, which at times are even more at risk. Yeah. And just letting daycare providers and parents know what to look out for, I think that that is half the battle, just making people aware. You've got a fact sheet from the Eco-Healthy Child Care part of your program, and it talks about plastics and plastic toys. So I was going down this list and I thought, gosh, how often do you see styrofoam plates or styrofoam cups used because they're so quote unquote cheap, right? But then you look at the list and it's like, oh, toxic styrene can leach from this these plastics. We don't want our children exposed to that. Or all the plastic toys that are in our toy stores. Parents really need to know that these are not safe for our children to be playing with. Yes, it's true. And everything from even the nap mats, the furniture, at times the flooring. Many times this is out of the control of the owner. Maybe they're leasing a place and they have to go with what's there. But many times these buildings are owned and or there may be influence of when a change is being made. So we don't, again, low to no cost is our motto. We're not expecting people to rip up their wall-to-wall carpeting, which is not that great, tomorrow. But when that change does come, to be better informed. And the power of purchasing, by the way, is something we've really honed in on. I mean, again, childcare is an attraction magnet for only a few, actually, we found out, major distributors of some of the major materials that are generally found in a chain, for example, a childcare chain. So we're also trying to better inform those in our midst, think about your purchasing. Let's create the swell of demand in the childcare realm so that it's not okay to be at these major childcare conferences like we so often see, and all of that stuff you just mentioned is fully on display and sometimes on sale. You know, right. And providers usually have to be very, very careful with their budget. So it's the benefit of them helping to sway the market, but also the benefit of them being leaders and champions for their health and that of the children that they're serving. All right. So for our listeners, once again, the website is www.cehn. That stands for Children's Environmental Health Network. And you can download the Eco Healthy Child Care Checklist and a numerous amount of fact sheets to help guide you and make the safest environment possible for our children. I need to take one break and remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, and we are joined by Nsedu Witherspoon. She is the director of the Children's Environmental Health Network. It is a terrific organization that is designed to protect the health of our children. She's based in Washington, D.C., but the work is nationwide and actually international. I can't think of anything better to do than to make sure the next generation is going to be as healthy as can be. And that leads me to the beautiful blueprint that you created. It's a blueprint for the protecting children's environmental health, and it's an urgent call to action. Tell me about when this was developed. Thank you. Yes, this was quite a labor of love. Around 2013-14, 
we as an organization, we were around that time we were celebrating our 25th anniversary. And again, it was becoming very clear that, hmm, we weren't going to be going out of business, if you will. Unfortunately, the needs were even greater because as far as we're concerned, ethically, the science has been there. When our field started almost 30 years ago, the science was really not there. The science is there. It continues to emerge. We are not moving on a lot of where the science is, which is appalling in, in my humble opinion. So we as an organization with our board's strong support drew a line in the sand and said, look, if we are needed for another 25 years, 50 years, of course we will do whatever we need to do, but we are going to really make sure that we are being as much of a strong leader in this field as we can. How do you prioritize so many issues of protecting children? There are so many issues. So we started on this path of this blueprint. We were able to do a wing spread retreat, which is a really big deal in Racine, Wisconsin. It was an honor to be there, kind of a think tank, couple days, some amazing thought leaders with us. We had many, many meetings leading up to that. And we really went out of our way to bring in more non-traditional perspectives than had been really involved in our field before. So communication specialists, youth leaders, legal perspectives, business leaders, in addition to researchers and scientists and advocates and policy leaders. And this is what the result was. So around 2015, we finally released it to the public. It's available on our site, and we're very proud of it. It identifies five or so major themes of work, uh, building political will, ensuring that we have the most effective communication, because that has been a glaring reality that we all in public health have had to digest. There are some great resources and tools available, but we do know much of the information is not getting to the populations that need it the most. So the way that we're getting it out is not the best, and especially the highest risk communities, the fence line workers, those that are out here in occupations that are making them extremely sick and are being exposed unbeknownst to them. So now this this blueprint is offered for all of us who are working to protect children. It's not owned by us. We are very proud to be a part of getting it out. And it's supposed to be helping us all streamline our work, help us prioritize a bit, and also help us think about where we have seen some evidence of proof of impact. That's another important realm here. We don't all have unlimited capacity, so we have to hone in and look at those areas that are showing us evidence of impact in actually protecting communities and families. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm so impressed when I see individual people taking the lead organizing small groups of people who simply care about their environment, their children. And you can do so much with just this strong, small group of people. And I think that's what this report shows as well. And that leads me into October 8th of 2020 is Children's Environmental Health Day. And if we start now thinking about what we can do, doesn't have to be anything big and flashy, But just recognizing that there is a day that's been identified nationally where we can make a difference, and you make it so easy for us because you can go online at your website, and we can go and we can see, well, what are other communities doing? You know, these are the the blueprints, if you will, for what people can do in their own communities. If we can do it in one community, we can do it in another. So you've got this advocacy toolkit. Tell me about that. Thank you. Yes, this October will be the fifth annual Children's Environmental Health Day. And believe me, for our standpoint, it is not just a day of observance. It's actually quite the opposite. It's a total day of action. And of course, it's one out of the 365 days of the year. We want folks to be thinking about kids 
Children first, actually, is the hashtag in everything that we do. And if we did that, how much further along our journey would we be? This is a day where we collect at the Children's Environmental Health Network a variety of activities that are happening on that day, around that day, around that week. It all counts. And these activities, we ask people to actually load them up just simply There's an area on the site for CEH Day where you can go in and just tell us, what are you planning to do? We're going to have a meeting with our PTO. We're going to sit down with our city council and talk about some pesticide bans. It all counts. We're going to plant some trees with some youth. We're going to go in and do some organic farm technique, regenerative farming with some local farms. All of it counts. And what's great is that others come in and they look at the list of what's happening and they get energized and they get ideas. And we start to help them model approaches in their area, and that's exactly what we're trying to do. We also get proclamations from mayors and governors, and I say we, we actually ask for folks out, constituents in our cities and our states, so any listeners listening, we'd love to work with you. We have in the toolkit everything ready to go, and you can actually ask your mayor or your governor to consider a Children's Environmental Health Day proclamation. This is not just a photo op. This is actually a tool of engagement because working for and behalf and with children and youth is usually an engagement starter versus all these other negative aspects we are working among us right now, especially in a place like Washington, D.C. these days. To have something, no matter what your political affiliation, no matter what your region, no matter what your social economic level, we all generally want the next generation to be healthier and safer. Let's really sit down and think about how to do that. Thank you, Mr. Ms. Mayor, Governor, for signing this proclamation. It's a first step. However, let's talk about some of the other activities that may not be uplifting this proclamation and this stand that we want to live up to in our region. So that's another tool. And, of course, there are activities happening in Washington, D.C. We put on a big Children's Environmental Health Day event where we also streamline and offer up examples of what's happening across the country. So it's something we're very proud of. It's growing every single day. We're always looking for partners. So please do visit the site. It's never too early. We're already starting to plan for next fall. That's fantastic. And just to give everybody, again, the confidence of moving forward on this, it doesn't have to be a big flashy event. It's just the idea of sitting down At a time when our country is so divided, can we not come together and agree that our children are our future and protecting them is the most important thing that we can be doing? I wanted to mention in this vein that we also have another document coming out. I think it was released in early February, a publication looking at a cancer-free economy. Tell me what that looks like. What is that exactly? Thank you so much. The Cancer-Free Economy Network is this, again, um, we work in a lot of collaborations in order to expand our capacity. We're not a huge nonprofit. And so this is an effort where in one generation we are collectively many, many groups together trying to change the paradigm of how we consider and look at and address cancer starting with the U.S., but certainly keeping our eyes open to the rest of the world because we know, for example, a lot of the air toxins that are related to our upper respiratory issues, some of them are known carcinogens, right? Some of the toxins that we find on our fruits and vegetables, our pesticides that we were talking about, certainly some of them have been identified as carcinogens leading to cancer with long-term exposures. So it's a win-win if we can think about removing to identify and work with our markets and our businesses and other forms of exposures 
to certain types of known carcinogens in our environment, we will have a huge impact. Obviously, environmental exposures are not the only implication for cancer diagnosis, but increasingly the science has shown us it is certainly a big part of the scenario. And in things like secondhand smoke, as well as certain forms of pesticides, for example, we do know that prenatal exposures do have a direct link to certain forms of cancers, among other exposures. Earlier this month, we were able to release a childhood cancer prevention paper. This is the first of its kind. It involves sustainable business leaders coming together with public health researchers, child health advocates like ourselves, and policy leaders. And the paper is written to give the background of what we know in the science, what we don't know, also to talk about the business implications, that sustainable business is not only good for your bottom line, it's also good for children and our next generation, and they're showing you how. And then the third section is on some case examples of how child protective policies are truly making a positive difference, not just today, but laying down the field for the future in a much more sustainable, healthy Mm -hmm. In preparing for this interview, Ms. Witherspoon, I went online and I was watching some of the talks that you have given nationally, and you were speaking to a group in Alaska. It was an Alaskan toxics action group, and you had a wonderful slide. It was a quote by Nelson Mandela. It said, there can be no keener revelation of a society's soul than the way in which it treats its children. Thank you. I have to frequently call on our ancestors, those that have come before us, those that have certainly struggled, I'd say way more than myself, i.e. Nelson Mandela. When I'm speaking before a group, I try to garnish whatever I can from all of that and just use myself as a messenger. I'm in this like everyone else. I'm constantly in learning mode. I'm fascinated by what I learn each and every day, every week. That's why I'm so passionate about the work that I do. But we also know collectively we are making a difference. It's small changes, it's incremental, but every now and again we'll have a ban on a major pesticide or we'll also have some lead-free type of standards. Whatever the case may be, people are becoming enlightened and they're understanding that we are the stewards of our destiny, honestly. When we see things that are wrong, we have to call it out. Nessa Mandela is one of those I do call on a lot when speaking to just help me do what I can do so that hopefully someone in that audience, at least one person, will feel motivated to do more. Mm -hmm. You also have a documentary clip on your website called Project Tender, T-E-N-D-R. Can you quickly tell me what that's about? Sure. So T-E-N-D-R, Targeting Environmental Neurodevelopmental Risk. That's what it stands for. It is another one of our fantastic collaborations children's environmental health researchers, environmental health scientists, policy folks, advocates, all coming together. And we've honed in, in particular, on neurodevelopmental chemicals of concern. So we have about seven or so that we've targeted, lead, for example, being one of them. Mm -hmm. Mercury is another one. We've been talking with the FDA about why the U.S. is still not banning mercury, for example, out of our dental amalgam. Mm. You know, there are countries around the world, including third world countries, that have done this or are on the trajectory to do this. But yet here we are still in the U.S. kind of fighting literally about the science of the implications to mercury and having it in our bodies long term. And that's so is an equity issue, by the way, because there are many dental offices that have already moved. They don't even offer this. A child or a family in a lower income community, you may not be so lucky to have those alternatives if you even have access to a dental office. But for example, lead, that is also a soapbox issue. It's been around much longer than it should have. We are still very much dealing 
with lead concerns. And we know the major routes of exposure are old lead paint in buildings built before the 70s, and we also know that it's found in our water and also in a lot of our consumer products. So when you think about children's behaviors again, putting dolls in their mouths and their toys in their mouths and things like that, when these products are laden with all kinds of chemicals, but in particular lead still, it's unfortunately very concerning. Although still the major route of exposure still continues to be the dust and the chipping paint from our buildings. But there's a very easy way to do that. You just maintain it by putting a sealant on and you obviously need to maintain the building. We're not asking people to tear buildings down. That's not cost effective. It's not realistic. But the fact that we still have yet that to overcome just shows us we are making a uh, strides, but we still really have to garnish our political will to just say enough is enough. Exactly. Well, we've got to close, but I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Most of all, I want to thank my guest, Ms. Ensedo Witherspoon, Executive Director for the Children's Environmental Health Network based in Washington, D.C. Thank you so much for your work and for sharing time with me today. Thank you so much.